Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's talk on film and the Soviet avant-garde with Ian Christie, who will be discussing the place of film as an art form after the revolution in Russia and the relationship between Soviet filmmakers and other artists at the time. Ian Christie is the Professor of Film and Media History at Birkbeck College and has specialised in Russian and Soviet film and art for the last 30 years. He has worked on a range of exhibitions, including Twilight of the Sars in 1991 at the Hayward Gallery, and most recently advising on all the film that you see in our Revolution Russian Art Exhibition, currently on display in our main galleries. This exhibition marks 100 years since the Russian Revolution of 1917 and focuses on the 15-year period between 1917 and 1932, when the Russian art flourished across every medium, including film. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Ian Christie. Um, hello. Uh, what a wonderful audience to see on a, a Saturday morning. As you've heard, I was responsible for the, the film components of, of the current Revolution show. It's a bit of a landmark, I think, in, in just in exhibition terms. I have been involved with a lot of Russian exhibitions um, and exhibitions that have featured the Russian episode. Um, it's very difficult to include film. Uh, there are logistical problems. How do you show it? I think the Royal Academy has really, um, you know, made a big stretch for this show. There was always the intention that there would be quite a lot of film, and we've managed to have a good representation of film across the different sections of the exhibition. Very short extracts, but it's there. What's interesting is that none of the reviewers so far, except one in the Times Literary Supplement, have even mentioned the film. So we do know something about the, you know, the, the demarcation lines between uh, historians of art um, who do not do film and film people who do not do history of art. I, am, I try to be amphibious um, and what I want to do is to talk you through some of the key issues about the really quite problematic relationship between the traditional arts, painting, sculpture, etc., and film, especially during the period covered by the, the exhibition. It's a, it's a rather knotty subject, and I'll end with a few uh, suggestions for further research or reading if you're interested, because obviously I'm only going to touch on some, some of the issues. So let's um, get going. A nod to uh, the men who made it all possible. <laughs> uh, one of those rare photographs before uh, Lenin died and Stalin moved sharply to exile Trotsky and eventually to do for him in exile in Mexico. Um, but there they are together, as they were, in 1919. And it's an interesting thought to consider what was their attitude towards film, if any. Uh, they had other things on their mind, of course. Um, they were busy trying to work out how to stage a revolution, and they got their lucky break after the February Revolution of 1917, uh, when they managed to stage a coup later in the same year. But did they have any views about film? Had they even been to see a film? It is a question worth asking. Um, the consensus at the moment is that Lenin knew very little about film indeed, and he may well have seen film during his exile period. He did write about going to the music hall. He may well have seen film in the music halls in London, for instance, he spent time in London or in many of the other, uh, any of the other uh, capital cities. Um, Trotsky almost certainly had seen film um, and did take a certain interest in it. Stalin, we don't know, but Stalin would become the one of these three who became really fixated on film, obsessed by film. And while the others were out of the picture uh, from the mid-twenties onwards, Stalin, of course, he was very much in the picture, in fact, controlling the picture, became really preoccupied with cinema. And it's interesting that in 1956, 
when Khrushchev denounced Stalin in the, the secret speech he gave to the, the party, um, he picked out cinema as one of the instruments that Stalin had used to uh, glorify his own role in the revolution, to create a cult of personality, to falsify history. Quite a lot of indictment was heaped on the film industry for having been a tool of Stalin. And it was, because they had very little option. So St Stalin certainly made cinema his own, particularly from the 1930s onwards, which is really not the period we're concerned with. I don't think he felt he had enough, he had enough to do before the first five-year plan, which came in at the end of the 1920s. Lenin, of course, he was in charge until 1923, until, first of all, uh, the assassination attempt and then his illness really put him out of the picture. Um, Lenin had very conservative tastes. He was interested in literature, up to a point, theatre, up to a point, painting, but only of the most traditional kind. And the problem was that all the artists who flocked to the revolution were mostly futurists, uh, modernists of one kind or another. And Lenin is recorded as saying, you know, can nobody find me a proper artist? And Lunacharsky, who was his minister of culture, said, well, the problem is we've got all these futurists. <laughs> Lenin was exasperated by futurism, absolutely exasperated by it. And uh, in his last months, as it were, he was seriously um, irritated by the fact that the most um, committed revolutionary artists were, for the most part, modernists. One of them, of course, was Vladimir Mayakovsky. And Mayakovsky um, was perhaps the most enthusiastic of all the futurists um, who flocked to the revolution, to the standard of the revolution. He, he felt a very personal relationship to the revolution. He called it, you know, my revolution. He published a long poem dedicated to Lenin, for instance. He was also very interested in cinema. And Mayakovsky took the opportunity in 1918, when the dust had not settled after the events of 1917, to actually appear in, to write and appear in three films. Uh, we have fragments of these films that do survive. Um, this is, the on the left is The Young Lady and the Hooligan. And guess what? Mayakovsky plays the hooligan, strutting around, obviously enjoying himself enormously, acting the hooligan who indeed falls in love with teacher and um, devotes himself to her, puts himself at her service. It's a very typically Mayakovskyan fable of the thug who, as it were, has a soft spot, because that's very much the persona that Mayakovsky projected. And in a film that we don't have complete, which is called, in English, something like fettered by film or shackled by film, we only have fragments of it, he again stars in the film, never one to keep himself out of the frame. But the, the actual woman in the picture, Lilia Brick, was indeed his mistress, his, the love of his life. So this is an extraordinary autobiographical film in which an artist falls in love with the image of a woman on the screen. It's a pity we don't have the whole film, but you can see that Mayakovsky was very, very interested in the, the poetic possibilities of film. Sadly, um, all his projects to make films when the Soviet film industry got underway came to nothing. They were rejected, one after another. They were turned down as being uncommercial, avant-garde, unsuitable. So he turned them into plays. And the plays for which Mayakovsky is noted today, The Bedbug, etc., those are all effectively rejected film scripts which he had produced during the 1920s. So this is a typical case, if you like, of one of the most dedicated um, fellow travelers who failed to get into the emergent Soviet film industry. What do we know about Lenin's official attitude to film? Well, you probably know that Lenin is quoted as saying, film is for us the most important of the arts. This was such an important phrase that it used to be picked out in big letters on the side of every building in the Soviet Union connected with film. Film is the most important art. It was on the side of every studio because it was the official founding slogan that gave cinema its importance 
Um, and it came from the mouth of Lenin himself, supposedly. But did Lenin ever say it? I am slightly skeptical. Um, now obviously, there's been much discussion about this. The two sources that we have for Lenin saying it are both retrospective, after, published after his death. Uh, Lunacharsky, the Minister of Culture, in his uh, conversations with Lenin, quotes, and this is the quote I've given you, the quote here, in our country, you, that's Lunacharsky, have the reputation of being a protector of the arts. So you must remember that for us, the most important of all the arts is cinema. Can't argue with that, can you? Except that Lenin, of course, was dead. <laughs> and there was a cult of, as it were, venerating Lenin through publishing one's reminiscences. And the great German Marxist, communist, Clara Zetkin, in her reminiscences of Lenin, which was widely translated, also said that Lenin had said that cinema was the most important of the arts. So those are our two main sources. Whether Lenin really had any serious thought about cinema, I think is open to question. He would indeed have approved of Lunacharsky's own contribution to cinema. Lunacharsky, who um, was responsible for directing cultural policy, was the, he was the commissar of enlightenment throughout the 1920s, uh, a very important figure, was himself a traditionalist in his own writing, his own playwriting especially, but he was a defender of modernists. And the, the really important feature of cultural policy in the 1920s is that Lunacharsky managed to ride this very difficult split between traditionalists and modernists. And his own play, Locksmith and Chancellor, which is a kind of, um, it's a sort of George Bernard Shaw-like play set in an imaginary country. Um, it's an allegory of revolution, and it was filmed in 1923 by a very traditional filmmaker. That's exactly the kind of film that you imagine Lenin would have approved of, although it's very unlikely that he saw it. There's a poster for it. You can see that it's a very traditional, dramatic film. It was disapproved of by all of the new Soviet avant-garde who regarded it as really beneath contempt, not the kind of film that they hoped would be being produced. So we can see a kind of split here between traditionalism in cinema and, and avant-gardism, just as there was in the other arts, as you can see in the exhibition um, here. The most ardent um, supporter, if you like, of Lenin's view about the importance of cinema was uh, Ziga Vertov. Uh, Ziga Vertov had started life as Denis Kaufman, uh, one of the three Kaufman brothers in Bielostok, what, what is now Poland. But when he'd reached Moscow uh, in the, the teens, he gave himself a new name, Ziga Vertov, a wonderfully whizzy name in Russian. It means something like spinning top. Um, and he reinvented himself as a futurist, as a futurist poet. He then took up cinema at the end of the teens, and he became the first newsreel um, editor after the revolution. He was responsible for gathering together the work of newsreel cameramen and publishing a series of chronicle films um, in the early years, of the years of the Civil War. He took Lenin's idea that there should be a proportion of films, that film programs should be resolutely educational and propagandist with a little bit of fiction just to bring in the public. And he published a whole series of manifestos, and I've given you the whole text here. Um, we must promote mixed programming as a slogan, said Ziga Vertov. He wrote wonderful manifestos. They're very inspiring. They should consist of a three-reel newsreel of the kind that I produce. He's promoting his own type. Um, a one-reel cartoon, a one- or two-reel scientific film or travelogue, and, if you have to, a two-reel drama or comedy. And that was this idea of the Leninist film proportion is something that, that Vertov continued to advocate for as long as people were listening to him. By the end of the 1920s, he was very much pushed to the margins and uh, really 
became silent as a filmmaker from the mid-1930s onwards. He spent the last 20 years of his life unable to make any films. We have a number of his films in the show. We have the, the Leninist Kino Pravda, which he produced on the first anniversary of Lenin's death. We just have a little extract of it. Um, and we also have a bit, a bit of his most famous film today, The Man with the Movie Camera, which he made as a kind of despairing last cry in 1929. And after that, it was really very difficult to continue. He made one more major film, Enthusiasm, which is also in the show. So that's the most ardent Leninist who's busy defending Lenin, what he claims to be Lenin's um, project. And Vertov, of course, he was a, quite a magnetic figure. There's no question that, that uh, Vertov was um, attractive to hardline constructivists. He became known as the most um, constructivist of all the filmmakers of the 1920s. And, that, if you've seen the show, that's one of the images that um, Rodchenko designed for his film, the, um, the Leninist Kino Pravda. It records Lenin's last days and hours as a kind of set of animated diagrams. You see his temperature falling and uh, reports on his health and the clock is running and so forth. It's a wonderful image. That was designed by Rodchenko for, for Vertov. And there you can see wonderful Rodchenko titles. That's top one there says The End. It appears at the end of every Russian film, Konyets. And that's a, a, a Rodchenko-designed end title. And you know, lettering on the screen, again, Rodchenko's influence. There are some marvelous examples of Rodchenko really taking up the challenge, which is what he believed in, of becoming a more industrial kind of artist. It was Rodchenko who said, done with easel painting. We don't need easel painting. Artists should be involving themselves in the life of society. And it was through Vertov that he got a chance to do that. He did some fantastic posters, of course, too. And that's his poster for Vertov's first feature film, Kino Glas, Kino Eye. Uh, there are many, many fine Rodchenko posters. Meanwhile, um, of course, the filmmaker who would become by far the most famous of all the early Soviet filmmakers is coming up fast on the outside, and that's uh, Sergei Eisenstein. Eisenstein had no contact with film, really, at all, until about 1923. And I don't think the idea of working in film had really occurred to him up to that point, but he saw the possibilities of bringing film into his theatre work and his very first film was a little insert designed to be a part of his production, um, The Wise Man, in 19... And we do have that. That's a still from the film, which was only found in the 1970s. It was found lurking in an archive, um, uncatalogued, and that is Eisenstein taking a bow. <laughs> also someone who would you know, uh, put himself forward in the sort of Mayakovskian manner. Um, he quickly saw that doing theater, doing avant-garde theater in 23 and 24, didn't really have a future. Um, it was only reaching very small audiences in Moscow, or and Leningrad, Petrograd, as it then was. So he began to think about cinema as a much more effective way of reaching a larger audience. And he made his first feature film called The Strike uh, in 1924. Huge success for those who saw it, which was not an enormous number of people. And it really drew attention to him as somebody who had an extremely original approach to film language. He was entirely self-taught, of course, um, but he, his instincts for dramatic effect through montage were already apparent in the strike. We did not know that film, interestingly, until the 1960s. Uh, the film was never seen abroad until the late 1960s. And if you look at the books on Soviet cinema, there's a famous one by Thorold Dickinson, written in the 1940s. He says, it would be really nice to meet someone someday who had seen Eisenstein's first film. So this was a total mystery. We knew it existed, but no one had seen it. Now that we have seen it, it's many people's favorite amongst all Eisenstein's films, because it has the freshness of, you know, of invention. But of course, the film that brought Eisenstein to um, 
the widest possible um, attention was the battleship Potemkin, um, which was made in 1925 to commemorate the 1905 revolution, uh, which became an, a, an important part of the official Bolshevik calendar of precursors to 1917. It was originally going to be a six-film series called Towards Dictatorship, meaning dictatorship of the proletariat, um, as it happens. <laughs> that was going to be the, the title. And you still see that on the front of some copies of Potemkin. It says, part of the cycle towards dictatorship. Uh, the rest of the cycle was never made. Uh, there was not much money at this time. And when people saw what Eisenstein had managed to do on a very small budget, working mainly in Odessa with his Potemkin episode, in a way that was enough. I don't know if anybody was at the screening that we had last night. Anybody? There was a special screening of Potemkin in the Regent Street Cinema um, last night, which was rather wonderful. Um, a man from the Russian news agency, TASS, came up to me at the end and said, so are English people interested in Russian culture? <laughs> which I thought was rather touching. I said, yes, they are. <laughs> they always have been. <laughs> when they're allowed to see it. Um, Pachomkin became a kind of um, a notorious instance. The Home Secretary uh, stood up in Parliament in, in 1926 and uh, assured Parliament under no circumstances would this dangerous film be allowed into the country. It, was, it became a cause célèbre. It was a, it was a major scandal in its own day. From 26 onwards, people quaked at the very mention of Pachomkin. And yet, of course, it was also the film that everybody wanted to see. Um, it was supposed to have an incendiary quality. It was, the, the, the suggestion was that when people saw it, they were ready to take to the barricades. It could foment revolution. Members of the German armed forces were forbidden to go and see it. Although it was showing in, quite widely in Germany uh, in 26. Its most famous scene is the Odessa Steps which Eisenstein improvised when he saw this great staircase in Odessa, and he realized the potential of the, the staircase. So he departed considerably from the script uh, in making the film, and in, in doing so, he invented a new language of something he called, in his writings about the film, he called it agit or agit guignol. In other words, it's agitational, but it's like grand guignol. It's like something which is designed to move the audience and to stir them by having the most shocking images possible. The film Battleship Potemkin, as it, news of it reached the, the wider world, of course made Eisenstein famous. Um, there are so many tributes to him by people who had managed to see the film. Uh, the three, probably the three most famous film people in the world, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks, you see sitting there, they all saw the film. Fairbanks and Pickford came to Moscow in 1926, and they said, quote, you have it up there, the battleship Potemkin is the most powerful and profound experience of my life. And uh, Mary Pickford was moved beyond being able to speak Chaplin also became a very close friend and supporter of Eisenstein's, and when Eisenstein finally got to Hollywood in 1930, he played tennis with Chaplin um, and spent a lot of time with, hanging out with Chaplin. And this was sincere. This was not a mere posture. Chaplin remained very much devoted to Eisenstein's work and to helping him in any way he could. So. Uh, Fairbanks and Pickford um, pulled back a bit and did not go around endorsing Soviet films after their initial enthusiasm. I think their enthusiasm was sincere, but they realized it wasn't politically very wise in the America of the later 20s. So Eisenstein, by 26, 27, had really a worldwide reputation, the beginnings of a worldwide reputation. Needless to say, this caused considerable um, tension at home. Envy, I think, would be the right word. There, were, there was a lot of disquiet that this young, rather arrogant figure, Eisenstein, was being fated as if he was the only filmmaker in the Soviet Union. 
That's one of Rodchenko's posters, incidentally, for Eisenstein. Rodchenko was happy to work in the field of posters for a wide range of films, filmmakers, and he did uh, at least three posters for, for Pachomkin, all in different styles. This, I think, is a particularly interesting one. Um, because it's really quite pictorial. It's not, not as geometric as we often think of, of uh, Rodchenko's work. But let's look a little bit at the, moment, at the politics of the Soviet avant-garde, because I think that's what we have to delve into a little bit if we want to understand the place of film in this rather complex situation. This is a time when the early Soviet state has very little interest in film at all. Uh, they would like to keep the cinemas functioning because cinema is an important source of revenue. By taxing the tickets, this was a major source of income. Cinema had been nationalized in 1918 by Lenin on principle. There wasn't much to nationalize, but it was nationalized. And so the business of showing films was, of course, nationalized. And revenue from ticket sales was, was important because Russians were great filmgoers. Uh, Russian filmgoing in the teens before the revolution had been as fervent and widespread as it was in every other country. There was a thriving Russian film industry, the production of an enormous range of films. There was a whole gallery of Russian film stars who all left the country in 1918. They moved gradually towards the Crimea, and most of them took ship and moved to Western Europe. Many of them ended up in Paris, and so the beginnings of the French film avant-garde is largely émigré Russians who wound up in Paris. Others went to Berlin, and a few went to Hollywood and became uh, minor actors in, in Hollywood cinema. But this is the core of the early Soviet avant-garde, a group calling themselves Lev, the left group. The central figure is You've guessed, Mayakovsky. Uh, that's Mayakovsky on the extreme left in this photograph. There are a number of group photographs of the, the Lef group. Mayakovsky was the editor of their journal, Lef, and Rodchenko designed the covers. So it's a tight little grouping. I mean, these are quite wonderful um, examples of avant-garde um, graphic design. This is where Eisenstein published his first manifesto the montage of attractions in the pages of Lef. And what you can see there, and this may be a little surprising, well, you can see right next behind Mayakovsky, you can see Boris Pasternak, because Pasternak was a member of Lef as well. Um, not perhaps the most um, avant-garde member, but he was certainly, he identified with this, this, other, this grouping of poets and visual artists. Sitting beside Mayakovsky is his lover, Lilia Brick, um, and behind her is her actual husband, Osip Brick, who seems to have been fairly complacent in this. <laughs> Complicated. There are lots of, there are two new books about the Mayakovsky-Brick um, menage that have just come out. If you, if you look at the current Times Literary Supplement, you'll see a, a couple of reviews. The, the, the procession of books about Mayakovsky and his love life uh, continues unabated. <laughs> It's a very popular subject. Um, and behind Lilia Brick, next to Pasternak, is Eisenstein. So there we have a tight little grouping showing that these were all, that they all felt at least part of the same avant-garde grouping. Um, in, in visual terms, we would call them predominantly constructivists or cubo-futurists, in some cases, to be more precise. Um, in literary terms, they were experimenting with new forms of verse. And of course, in film terms, well, they had Eisenstein and they had Vertov. Vertov was also a somewhat detached member of the group. And this is um, a rather interesting um, piece of evidence that Rodchenko was probably quite close to Eisenstein in filmmaking terms. Eisenstein, that's him on the bottom left posing in front of one of his posters for Battleship Potomkin. It's a studio picture, as it were, of him. But on the right is a very, very interesting photograph, and I do not know exactly the origins of this photograph. 
Uh, I've published it in, in a book, but I don't know exactly where it comes from. It's dated 1926. Eisenstein was at work on his next film called The General Line. It's supposed to be a film about agriculture. He traveled the length and breadth of the Soviet Union filming, and at one point he clearly filmed with Rodchenko and um, Stepanova, because there they are appearing in the film. But that episode does not survive. We have no moving image material. We, we know it, it happened because of that photograph. The film was radically revised and reshaped and it became a different film called The Old and the New in 1929. So that's you know, a little bit of um, a sort of tantalizing piece of evidence that they could have become even closer if the film had continued in the direction it was going in. And, and that's um, Stepanova and Rodchenko, another um, image of their, their work in construction. The other figure we need to bring into this, who was not um, a member of the left group, um, was Ismailievich. Uh, as, as you will know, quite a big um, part of the exhibition is devoted to Malievich, and Malievich has become, for many people, the most important figure in the Russian painting avant-garde, both before the revolution and during the post-revolutionary period. Um, Malievich was not a joiner, in a sense. He founded his own movement, uh, suprematism, and um, he was fairly scornful of those who were not suprematists. Uh, there's a wonderful image of, of uh, Malievich standing in front of a set of diagrams that he prepared showing that suprematism was the climax of all artistic development. Everything before, cubism, etc., constructivism, you name it, it was all reaching its climax in suprematism. Um, he was a man, let's say, with a big ego. But then there are many big egos in this period, so he was not alone in that respect. Um, this is one of the famous images of Malievich standing in front of uh, an exhibition that he gave, one of the, the last exhibitions that he gave of his suprematist work. And of course his, his story, as it were, is narrated in, in the Revolution exhibition here. Now, um, Malievich wrote about five or six essays on film. Uh, the, the Russian German scholar Oksana Bulgakova has published a book called Malievich on Film, bilingual, if you want to look at it. And she has discovered texts that were never traditionally known about. Malievich had a very particular view of film. He believed that film was lagging behind the other arts. And as you can see, this is a quotation here. Cinema will only reach a new dynamic kinetic structure of film through new art forms, through pure abstraction. So Malievich's image of what cinema should be was something like suprematist painting. It should be animation, effectively. He never made a film. Um, he had enough problems as the 20s wore on, defending his own position. He again found himself pushed out, uh, pushed to the margins, and in effect forced to recant so that his last paintings have a, a figurative aspect, which certainly his, his most famous work of the teens did not have. But that's a poster he designed. That's a poster for Dr. Mabuza, the German film by Fritz Lang, which we know was imported into the Soviet Union. It was recut by Eisenstein to turn it into a more Bolshevik view of um, the gangster, gangsters in, in the West. Uh, that doesn't survive. We don't know what the recut looked like, but we do know that, that uh, Malievich did a poster for it. So there's a lot we don't fully understand about what was happening behind the scenes. And the most startling thing of all is that we have discovered that Malievich and Eisenstein shared a dacha. They both had a share in a, a collective dacha outside Moscow. And so they must have sat down together at the same table. If you read what they wrote about each other, you would assume that they were sworn enemies, but I think not. They both had a position, a public position to defend. Uh, they wrote some wonderful polemics with Malievich saying, Eisenstein you know, is so backward, it's not true. 
uh, when Eisenstein uh, made October, Malievich said that it was, you know, no better than the kind of painting that was made in Russia in the 19th century by the Wanderers. This was an insult. We obviously think that the Wanderers' pictures are marvelous in many ways, but it was definitely an insult uh, as delivered by Malievich. And in a sense, Eisenstein was seen as having stepped back from his earlier position when he made October. October was a very, very controversial film. It was not a chronicle of the great events of 1917. Some people accused it of being a symbolist film, and they're right, it is in many ways a symbolist film. It's a very complex film. Malievich, I think, simply didn't understand it or wasn't interested. At the same time, Eisenstein wrote that Malievich didn't understand cinema, hadn't a clue. He was approaching cinema as if it was painting, which it obviously isn't. So there's a kind of non-meeting of minds in their writings, even though the, the polemic, which reached its climax in 1928, is a very instructive one. It shows you how much it was still possible to have a serious argument in Russia, which would not be the case in a few years' time. I think I mentioned earlier that there was quite a lot of um, um, hostility, envy towards Eisenstein. Eisenstein was considered to be um, somewhat full of himself, maybe too clever for his own good. And there's an interesting comment on him, Nadezhda Mandelstam, the widow of the great poet Mandelstam, who perished in the Gulag. Um, she wrote in her memoir about the, the specious glitter of the then fashionable Eisenstein. They said that Ossip certainly disapproved of him enormously. This is understandable. I mean, if you get a bunch of painters together today and ask them what they think about filmmakers, are they going to be polite? Some will be, others not. This is my experience. Um, I think there was probably a feeling that cinema was getting too much exposure, was becoming a dominant force, the new Soviet cinema. And I think artists must have felt this because their work was certainly not being seen on a, a very wide front. We know there were tensions within the community of the, the new filmmakers. For instance, Kosintia von Trauberg, who were the, um, the Leningrad, the Petrograd, Leningrad, St. Petersburg wing, you know, the, the, the city that keeps being renamed during this period, but you know the one I mean. Um, Kosintia von Trauberg, who were very important filmmakers um, in, let's call it Leningrad, um, who'd made a string of films during the 1920s, and we have their film, The Youth of Maxim, in the show. It's the one that has sound from 1935. They, um, they thought that Eisenstein was being a bit precious and that he really should be trying to make films that spoke more directly to, to the mass audience. But at the same time, Eisenstein admired their work and at one point had thought about joining them when he was still unsure about his future direction. So these were all people who knew each other, even though there were rivalries. And that's a, a very interesting and very rare photograph that shows Podovkin on the left, Eisenstein in the center, and of all people, Zygovetov on the right. Um, they had some furious polemics between them, but here we see that they were at least on talking terms. So there's a lot we don't fully understand about their dynamics. I think we should see it in terms of competition for attention and competition for resources. Because at this point, the Soviet state had still not committed to supporting film or giving any clear sense of direction to where filmmaking should be going. And by 1929, they've started to censor projects. 1929 is the first year when a proportion of the film projects submitted are turned down. Before that, it's possible to make almost anything and get away with it. From 29 onwards, that becomes more difficult. Something that I think is quite significant, I've mentioned it in my catalogue essay, um, unfortunately it's, it's not in the show, but I think it's quite important, is that Alfred Barr, a very important curator and art educator, the founder of the Museum of Modern Art in, in New York, he came to Moscow in the end of 27, 28, and he saw the work of all the leading artists, 
And he met the filmmakers. And he saw Eisenstein's October in the course of being edited. He saw work by Podovkin and others. And he wrote in his diary, um, why do the, the Soviets even bother with painting when film is obviously what they do best? Interesting. Um, it wasn't that he disapproved of the work, that the painting that was being done exactly. He just thought that it wasn't on the same level as the film work. And in many ways, here you have, for instance, an article he wrote soon after his return to the States, The Lef Group and Soviet Art. That tells you really what he thought. And here you can see the sort of names that he mentions. Uh, Tretyakov, Eisenstein, Brick, Shklovsky, uh, Stepanova, Rodchenko, etc. So he certainly knew the Soviet avant-garde. And when MoMA was created in 1934, um, this is the teaching diagram that Alfred Barr produced. This is you know, all you need to know about modern art in one handy diagram. <laughs> Very similar in many ways to, to uh, Malievich's diagram. Um, I don't quite know whether, whether Barr had seen Malievich's diagram. He pro probably had. But this idea that you can actually produce a diagram of modern art to help sort out all the isms was clearly very much in the air at the end of the 1920s. And Barr was a famous educator. He was a very popular lecturer. And of course, he structured the Museum of Modern Art in such a way that they had a fabulous collection of early Soviet art. And they had a film department, the first museum in the world to have a film department. So he, was, he stuck to his principles that um, film should be a part of modern art. And this, as I said at the very beginning, has been slowed, message has been slow to get through, unfortunately, ever since the 30s. So that, in a way, brings us to really the end of, very nearly the end of the story, as far as the 1920s is concerned. But I want to kind of finish by showing you what I think is the real afterlife of this decade, because 20s Soviet cinema as I say here, entered the, the, the canon of cinema. And around about 1930 is the moment when, in many parts of the world, people begin to take stock of cinema and say, well, what is the history of cinema? We've had cinema for 35 years. What is, what is the structure of the history of cinema? And many books are published. One of the most famous ones is published in Britain, called The Film Till Now. It stayed in print for decades. And that clearly has the Soviet filmmakers built in as an essential part of the foundations of cinema as art. Um, that's a new book on the Museum of Modern Art, its history, and again, it shows how important the Soviet films were. But most interesting of all, in some ways, the Film Society, the Film Society here in London, the original Film Society, was showing Soviet films. You can see there its program in 28, 29, 29, 30, and I put stars on all the Soviet films. You can see just how important. Anybody who was anybody in London belonged to the Film Society. It was the only way you could see films that had not been passed by the censor. Um, and so everybody, you know, uh, Maynard Keynes, the great economist, Virginia Woolf, Leonard Woolf, the whole Bloomsbury group, all of them belonged to the Film Society. These are the films that they had on offer. You can see how important Soviet cinema, and quite a wide range of Soviet cinema, was for establishing the foundations of film as art. And that is really what has stayed with us. Uh, open any book on the history of cinema, any standard textbook, and you will see that Soviet revolutionary film has a kind of automatic entry. There are problems with this because a wider range of Soviet filmmaking in the 20s is not part of that canon and should be, in my view. One of the films that we're showing down below, for instance, is Boris Barnett's The House from Trubnaya, which I hope you get to see. It's an absolutely wonderful film, a comedy, dismissed as being not a serious film. So that um, very polemical, strictly modernist view of what cinema should be, built around Vyatov, Eisenstein, Podovkin, Dovzhenko. That has dominated the history of cinema, whereas many other wonderful filmmakers 
who flourished during the 1920s um, have been rather exiled to the margins. So this canonization is not unproblematic, but it's what we've got. <laughs> um, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave that on the screen. If you want to pursue any of these issues a little bit further, um, obviously the catalogue, very wonderful catalogue that has been produced to go with the... I've got a, an essay in the catalogue. And that's three books which I co-edited which do say quite a lot about the place of Soviet film and how it kind of relates to what's going on in the other Soviet arts and culture. Um, and that's how to contact me should you feel the, the urge to. But I, I hope I've left enough time for any questions. Um, Hi there. Um, I know you mentioned that some of it was censored, um, but I'm kind of interested in how Soviet film started to change um, after 1927, the end of the silent era, once sound was able to be incorporated into film. Because obviously someone like Eisenstein relies so heavily on montage and image juxtaposition that I was interested in how the filmmakers reacted to the technological advancement of sound. That's a big subject. <laughs> um, yes, quite, but an important subject too. I mean, we, we have in, in that book, The Film Factory, we have a whole, it's, it's, it goes year by year with original writings from the period. You can see what a what an agonizing business the coming of sound was. Basically, in, in 28, um, Eisenstein, Podovkin, and Alexandrov signed a manifesto, which was widely published around the world uh, in English and other languages, which said, it's a statement on sound. And they said, it is important that now that we have synchronized sound, recorded sound, that it should not be simply used in conjunction, in synchronization with the image. Let us have um, asynchronous sound. Let us have sound in counterpoint to the image. Remember, they hadn't made a sound film at this point. <laughs> the Soviet Union was technologically very backward, and there were no sound films made until 1930. Three years behind the rest of the world. We've got one of the films that speaks to that idea in the exhibition. If you, if you see the film called The Deserter, by Podovkin, made in 33. That actually is a film that uses asynchronous sound. It's a wonderful film. It's not very well known, <laughs> to put it mildly. Eisenstein didn't manage to make a film for all sorts of reasons until he made Alexander Nevsky in 1938. And by that time, he had changed his mind about the use of sound and had started working with Prokofiev. And so it's a film which is almost operatic in its use of music and sound. Some filmmakers adapted very easily. Vertov said, what's the problem? And went out and made enthusiasm to prove that there was no problem at all. You could just start recording sound on location and, and that, that, what, what's the difficulty? Um, Kosenzieff and Trauberg, they struggled a bit, but eventually they hit their stride with the Maxim trilogy and produced fantastic films uh, with music by Shostakovich again, but not too much of it. Uh, and great acting, so they were able to draw on the great Russian acting tradition. So they all adapted in different ways. Um, censorship, that's a very big subject. Basically, Soviet filmmakers were, because they were wholly dependent on the state, it was very simple to control what projects got support and what didn't. And it was pretty clear which were the favored filmmakers. And if you were not favored, your projects didn't get support. No problem. In 1935, there was a grand congress held of Soviet filmmaking, which laid down the law, just as it had been done for writers and for theater workers and for musicians. Socialist realism is the only official doctrine. Of course, there are different ways of interpreting socialist realism, but everyone had to conform to the idea that they were working within the framework of socialist realism. I think Soviet cinema of the 1930s is actually much richer than people realize, but it got a very bad press abroad. And what happened in America, some of the most famous critics in America, like Dwight MacDonald, said, well, actually, Soviet cinema has become just like Hollywood. Yes and no. <laughs> there were Hollywood aspects to the new Soviet cinema, but why shouldn't there be? The problem was that the... American critics who had so admired the films of the 20s were anti-Hollywood back home. And so the politics of actually where you stood are really quite complicated. 
So as I say, it's a, it's a big and interesting subject, and many of those assumptions are still with us today. Would you say that the fact that quite a few of these revolutionary filmmakers were Jewish made a significant difference? Well, that's a subset of the general question of so were institutional anti-Semitism, particularly in Stalin's Russia, I think. Of course, there were Jewish people active in all the arts. It can be argued that they suffered, possibly because they were Jewish and known to be Jewish, yes. Quite a significant proportion of film personnel were Jewish. Yeah, this is true. Very few filmmakers suffered the um, extremes of persecution and execution that other artists and other media did. The theatre was decimated. Writers, uh, artists of all kinds, especially writers, um, suffered dreadfully under the persecution of the 1930s during the Great Purge. Mandelstam, many, many others. You can see some of them recorded in the memory, room of memory in the exhibition down below. Did they suffer because they were Jewish or just because they were independent spirits who were not prepared to toe the line? It's debatable. When Stalin wanted to gather together a group of well-known Russian artists during the Second World War, after the Soviet Union entered the war. He um, gathered together Eisenstein and others to make a, a broadcast to the Jews of the world. We stand beside you. That's the only record we have of Eisenstein speaking English, by the way. He, he spoke very good English, but it's the only time we have him and speaking English. But two or three of those great Jewish actors were in the gulag shortly after appearing in that. But Eisenstein wasn't. And so the general assumption, just to give you a kind of a simplified answer, is that Stalin did not persecute filmmakers. He actually put cinema on a kind of pedestal. There were severe constraints over what you could and couldn't do, but very few Soviet filmmakers actually suffered the kind of extremes of persecution and execution that, that artists in other fields did. So it, it is complicated. Um, I would not say anybody who was Jewish probably suffered for it to some degree if they were a prominent person during the Stalin era. There was a kind of ferocious anti-Semitism at work which waxed and waned. But did they suffer more from than others? Difficult to know. Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask, so after the suppression, um, I know you said obviously not a lot of this film was suppressed, but the film that was suppressed and along with the other art that was suppressed, what happened to it and was it sent away somewhere, was it preserved or was the majority of it destroyed? Well, as far as film is concerned, um, and actually painting as well, um, I think the point is made that some of Popova's work was used to sort of um, to, to keep out the drafts in a dacha. <laughs> a lot of it survived in, in very strange ways. But um, films, it's an old Russian principle that n never throw anything away. And a surprising amount of films that were banned uh, in the 1930s, for instance, which is when films really do start to be banned, were preserved. And gradually they started to come out. There's a f an interesting film called um, uh, Severe Young Man, Srogi Junost, which uh, was the most banned film of 1933, 34. Nobody could see it. And I remember, I, I first saw it in Moscow. I asked if you could see it in 1984. And I was told, yes, it was the beginning of Perestroika. So we had a special screening of it. And word spread around the building that this was a chance to see Stroga Yunost. And by the time the screening was over, the, the room was absolutely full of people who had heard about the film but never been able to see it. But it was preserved. So in a way, that old... Russian, I think it's Russian really, more than Soviet tradition of keep it just in case. You never know how things may change. Actually has been very, very beneficial for film. And there are very, very few films that were lost through censorship. They were lost because they were taken out of circulation. But during Perestroika, we had something like 200 films that had been shelved, as they used to call it, brought back into circulation. So, um, you know, most of it is there for us to see if we know what to look for. Uh, incidentally, just on that note, can I quickly do pick up a leaflet as you leave? <laughs> this is a series of films which uh, I've programmed 
which are a kind of extension of the exhibition in some ways. It's really exploring the theme of revolution as it begins in Soviet film. And one of the films that we're showing is called The Beginning of an Unknown Century. And that's a very good example of a film that was censored in 1967. It was commissioned for the 50th anniversary of the revolution and was, can't show that. And now it's available. So if you really want to see what, you know, what a censored or once censored film looks like, do come along and see it. I've been observing the films, looking at the films before in the 1920s, 1930s, and it looks, they look very serious. I'm just wondering if there are any comedies or um, like Long and Hardy style <laughs> from America happening at that time. Did Russians have comedic films? I'm very glad you asked that. <laughs> Because yes, that's precisely what's missing from this canon that I was talking about. It's, it's simply missing. And the problem is that foreign audiences um, did not expect or want to see Soviet comedy. It's as simple as that. So Boris Barnett's film, which I've already mentioned, The House on Trubnaya, which you, you can see an extract from in, in the show, it's an incredible comedy. It has people rolling in the aisles whenever it's shown. And the only comment on that that you will find until modern times is Thorold Dickinson saying, huh, it looks as if Boris Barnett was an old-style filmmaker who just joined the shots with no sense of rhythm. He was completely blind to the fantastic filmic qualities of Barnett, who specialised in comedies. And many other filmmakers did too. Very influenced by American comedy, uh, Kuleshov, another of the key Soviet pioneers wrote a film about Americanism, uh, wrote a, uh, a paper about Americanism, how we, Soviet filmmakers, can learn from American comedy. We can learn from Buster Keaton, learn from Chaplin. These are truly modern filmmakers. So there's a lot of comedy, and much of it simply does not have the status, unfortunately, that the more serious revolutionary films do. But it's a gross misrepresentation of what Soviet Russian audiences were actually um, responding to. Thank you very much for this lecture. I'm Russian myself, and I'm really interested in this exhibition. When we heard this news, we are here from uh, Northwest just to see how many people are really want to know about Russian art, especially that period. Thank, for, thank you, everybody, for coming, and I hope that this day will uh, show us a lot about that time. But my question is about, uh, actually, two questions. You mentioned the, the producers, uh, but can you say what was the main topic of that? Because we learn about that, but we started learning when it was 1930s. Uh, Alexandrov, Lyubov Arlova, all those comedies and uh, Soviet films will, will of golden era of Russian cinema, of Soviet cinema. And of course we know Braninosic Potemkin and Steiner, but maybe that's it. Uh, we heard some names, Barishny, Huligan, Maikovska, of course, and just two films which I personally know. And can you tell uh, the names of films? And I am actually crazy on statistics. How many films were produced at that time? And uh, this is one question, and another one. <laughs> Sorry for that, but I'd like to know, because for me it's essential. And can you, uh, uh, have you ever made like a list of essential features of uh, films of that era, which would give them title being uh, avant-garde or the futurist films. The special, when we can still say, oh, it's futurism, because we know that, that, that features. Something like of shooting technique or whatever. Okay, well, yes, well, I mean, just to, a sense of the scale of production. I think your, your first question was, what's the scale of production? Um, during the 1920s, there were tremendous restrictions, material restrictions. There was no factory until the end of the 20s producing film stock, raw film stock. And so Russian filmmaking was held back by material problems. Um, and in fact, many early Russian films had the emulsion scraped off the film so that it could be recoated and used for a new production. Because there was no what you have to remember is there was no sense of a posterity for cinema at this time, anywhere, really. And um, we know that a number of films that we can read about, and we even have the posters, 
have completely disappeared, not because they were censored, but simply because the, the film stock was reused. The, the, the Soviet government in the 1920s sold the original negatives of both Battleship Potemkin and October to Germany for valuta, for hard currency. They didn't think there was any point in keeping the negatives. The films had served their purpose well and good, and so there are no original negatives for those films in, in, in Russia. Because it was, a, it was a cash issue in many ways. Um, 1927 really marks the climax of production in the silent period. That's the point at which there's most production. We have the majority of films from that year do survive, but not all. Maybe there's a quarter missing. But then that's much better than the situation in American cinema and British cinema. We have almost no films from that period that survive in Britain or America. So Russia is actually better off in many ways than we are because we had absolutely no thought for the history of our cinema. Um, in terms of you know, recommended films and avant-garde films, well, I've, I've organized a lot of programs at the National Film Theater in the past. And um, some of those discoveries you can find in, in, in things like in the books that I've, I've mentioned here. Um, and some of the films are actually available on, on DVD now. It is possible to get a tremendous range of films on DVD, particularly from America, where there is a much bigger market for them than there is here in Britain. So I think look at the catalogues of people like um, Criterion, um, Kino, Lorber, uh, and particularly Milestone. Milestone have done some wonderful um, publication of films on DVD. Uh, th those are the places to look, I think, for the rarities. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.